invite you to turn to the next of this chapter 24. few moments I'll read this passage to you, Exodus 23 verses 20 through 33, and I think as we read it, it will be fairly plain what the main idea of the text is. It's really about Israel being brought home, and how the Lord will do that. Now just the other night, I think it was Friday night after our business meeting, uh, we were driving home but too far away. Um, it was dark, and the uh, fog was fairly thick as we were going home. And uh, got out to one of the back roads that leads to our house, and I'm playing with the lights to see what's going to be best. The fog is so thick, it's hard to see uh, more than just a little bit in front of you. And so I'm trying the high beams, trying the low beams. I just thought I'd try turning the lights off altogether to see what happened and couldn't see anything. It was completely dark. Um, tell by the shutter of my wife next to me that it wouldn't be a great idea to continue like that. So I, I turned the lights back on. That's the way it is for all of us. Left to ourselves, we're walking in darkness. Fog is thick, you can't tell where you're going at all. Even if you think you know where home is, if it's completely dark and you have no light, no one guiding you, you will become disoriented very quickly. You will not know how to get home. We understand that as believers in Jesus Christ, he is the light of the world. He is the one who lights our path. He is the one who leads us, who guides us. He is the one who is bringing us home. Home to heaven, home to his kingdom. He is the one who will bring us there. God's word, we know, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Without him, we are in complete darkness. Israel has been brought out of Egypt. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've been given the law, and now they have nowhere to live until God brings them home. And this passage is really about how God is going to bring that to pass. They have been promised, and so their ancestors have been promised, that God would give them this land of Canaan, set with a very specific boundary, and God would give it to them. They have to get there. And if they're left to themselves, if they now have the law and are just now to try to get there on their own, Maybe they know the way, but even then it will not be a success. Even if you know the way, if you do not have God plowing it for you, you will not find your way there. So Israel is given this instruction here at the end of the, really the giving of this portion of the law. They are now told about the land that they will be given, how they will get there by God's power. And God will be very clearly the one who is doing the heavy lifting of getting his people into the land. They will not be able to get there and look back at the journey that they've taken and think, wow, we did a great job. They will look back and think, God has been faithful. God has done what he has said. And so, as a people of the Holy God, 
They will have a powerful God clearing the way, and yet they still need to follow him. They need to obey him. They need to listen. And we know for this generation, though they're promised here being brought into the land, we know that this is the generation that botched it big time. Because they got into the wilderness and they decided that they were not going to follow God in. And that led to significant consequences, which we'll discuss later on. But from this vantage point, before they hit the road, they need to know they have a powerful God who is leading them, going before them, and that they need to be a faithful people listening to and obeying their God. They are to be brought into this very real land, described in verse 31, with the borders set from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. They have very specific and real land that they're being brought to. How will they get there? Let's read this text, and I want you to notice, as we read it, the emphasis on what God will do for his people to get them there. Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him, and obey his voice, do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice, do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Ivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. I will, set, I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Stop together. Father, we ask you that during this time your word would be powerfully applied to our hearts by your spirit. We would recognize very clearly what you have done for us in Christ Jesus and what you expect from us. And as a result, Lord, you make us people who walk with you follow all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I hope you noticed the heavy emphasis on what God will do. Certainly there is an expectation for what the people of God will do here. But look again, just to see so clearly what God has promised to his people. Verse 20 says, I sent an angel before you. Again, he says, I have prepared the place for you. Verse 22, I will be an enemy to your enemies. Verse 23, I blot them out. Verse 25, he will bless your bread and water. I will take sickness away from you. Verse 26, I will fulfill the number of your days. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you. I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Verse 28, I will send hornets before you. Verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you. Verse 31, I will set your border and I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. By my count, there's 15 different promises that God gives to his people about what he is going to do for them and bringing them into the land. And certainly that's the emphasis here. And certainly the emphasis is on God doing the heavy lifting. His people really, by contrast, don't have all that much to do. Doesn't mean they're exempt, doesn't mean they have nothing to do. But it is God who will get the accomplishments really under his belt. It's the one, he is the one who makes and keeps his promises. Doesn't leave us totally passive. It's not as though God expects the people of Israel just to lie down, relax their muscles, and think happy thoughts, and he will kind of pick them up and bring them into the land. He rather expects them to trust him and to obey him. Look at what it says about what their responsibility is. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him, obey his voice, do not rebel against him. Verse 22, carefully obey his voice, do all that I say. Verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. You shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God. Verse 31, you shall drive them out before you. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. You look those lists, see how much God is taking on shoulders and what he's expecting his people do. Israel certainly expected to obey God. But as they do that, they cannot even think that their obedience is what brings about the ultimate results in this scenario. Because God is the one who says that he will drive out the inhabitants of the land. Knowing it's full of people already and God has to clear the land for them, he promises to do so. He promises to send his terror which is another way of saying that he is sending really an announcement about what he did to the Egyptians. And the people hear and tremble. It also says that he's sending his hornets. We don't know exactly what that means. It could be literal, but more likely another way to refer to the kind of terror he's sending before the Israelites to announce what he accomplished against the Egyptians. This is 
Israel having a mighty God who has the way cleared for them. In no way are they to consider themselves trailblazers. God is to be the one who is blazing the trail for them. If you have any question about this, just think about what Israel did once they got into the land. As they go to fight their first battle at Jericho, you have to understand it is not a normal military strategy to have your army walk around the city seven times and then shout and then have the walls fall down flat. It's not the way militaries fight. In Israel, even if they thought that they were strong and they could concoct a great strategy and put together all the weapons of warfare that they could possibly muster of the greatest kind of technological achievements, if they went forward without God having gone before them, they would accomplish nothing. They would drive no one out. They would inherit no land. This is what Israel needs to understand if they go into the land, that it is God himself who is clearing the way. Of course, as we read a passage like this, we have to in some way translate it into our lives. We don't have a physical land that we need to go conquer or a city that we need to march around seven times. But we still have the same God, the same God who goes before us, same God who is mighty. But that's one of the primary takeaways from this, is that what Israel was experiencing then and there is unique in a sense in that situation. But what translates for us is that our God and what he has done is true, and he is our God. That's part of the relevance for us here and now, is that what happened then and there actually did happen. And therefore we have some level of assurance that our God still has the same amount of power working for us. Yet it's important to understand the, the setting that we find Israel in. They are a people who are coming into a relationship with God through what's known as the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is rooted in law. There are certainly promises here, but notice how the promises are contingent on Israel's obedience. Look, for example, at verse 22. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. That's a big if. If you carefully obey, if your life depended on that if, how would you be doing? Pretty treacherous situation to be in if your relationship with God is dependent on an if, and that if is ultimately dependent on you. And we know for the Israelites what they did. They botched it big time. For only a, a sliver of their history do they find themselves in the land at peace during a slim reign of David and Solomon and during a few other righteous kings do they experience some level of peace. But by and large, they are at war, they are struggling, they are oppressed, they are facing difficulties. Why? Because they didn't keep verse 22. If you carefully obey, then I will be. Yeah. 
What about us? Is our relationship to God that precarious? Is it as precarious as a two-letter word? You know your Bible. You know that God can always plan to establish a new covenant. It's worth your time to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Verses 31 to 34. This wonderful passage describes what God intended to do in the establishment of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, by covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That's the exact setting that we are in Exodus. They have entered into this old covenant. They've been given the law, and they, have, they are going to break it. But verse 33 goes on with this wonderful gospel news. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's the wonderful promise of God, that he doesn't write his law and the new covenant on tablets of stone that people look at and are unable to keep, but rather he writes his law on our hearts and by his spirit gives us the power to actually obey him. And not only that, but he writes into this covenant forgiveness. He will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This is the great gospel promise of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 32, just a couple of pages over in your Bible, verse 40, elaborates on this covenant. Jeremiah 32, verse 40, puts it this way, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Oh, that sounds so good, doesn't it? God will not turn away. He will keep his face set toward his people for doing good. And he goes on, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. What a wonderful promise of equal proportion. Not only does God promise not to turn away from his people, but he promises to put into their hearts the very thing they need to not turn from him. And he goes on, he says in verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. That's new covenant, that God himself will give new hearts and that his people will actually know him. And knowing him means they will love him, worship him, obey him. They won't turn from him and he won't turn from them. And he is the one who will do it. This covenant, you don't enter through a physical circumcision or by being there on Mount Sinai or having literal blood sprinkled on you. But this is the kind of covenant that you come to by faith. It's the very covenant that Jesus himself inaugurated and established in Luke 22:20 20, at the Last Supper after he had the bread 
took the cup and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So if you have trusted Jesus, then his blood has covered you. You're forgiven of your sins. You are given a new heart. And God himself puts something into you, namely his spirit, so that you will not turn from him. And he has now a disposition towards you that you will not turn from you. All those who trust Christ inherit this promise. So as we go back to the text of Exodus chapter 23, we really have to keep it in mind with the framework, the lens of this new covenant, of what God has done. And certainly there are lessons still here for us. Because as his people brought into his fold by the blood of Jesus Christ, we still have to basically ask the question of what does God promise to do for his people? And what does God expect his people to do? Those are the two questions I want to spend the remainder of our time considering from Exodus 23. What does God promise to do for us? And what does God expect us to do? First, what will God do for us? What did he promise? We'll look at verse 20. What he promises to do is that he promises to send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Yet we understand that's originally to Israel who's going to inherit a physical land. So we have to keep in mind how this would apply to us. But let's unpack this a little bit. God is telling his people, Israel, that he's going to give them an angel, basically prepare the way for them. Angel can also be translated as messenger. When we think of angel, we often think of that realm of uh, spiritual beings that God created during some point of the creation week. And they have a finite life, meaning they have a beginning. And they dwell with God. Some of them fell into sin. We call those demons and Satan. But there is a realm of holy angels that still exist, still active in the world. And we think of them as those servants of God. Certainly there is that reality. But I think the person that's being spoken of here is something different than that. We'll try to look at that for a moment. This angel or this messenger that God sent is quite a unique character. And God sending this angel before Israel to guard them on the way and bring them into the place that he prepared for them. You know that God doesn't make any superfluous decision. Everything that he decides to do is intentional. It has a specific goal and purpose in mind. And so we know that he does this. They sent this specific angel for a very particular reason. We have to ask, who is this that God sends? I just want to make a couple of observations to try to draw this out a little bit. First of all, notice that this angel that God sends, or this messenger that he sends, has a mission. His mission is to guard the people and to bring them to the place that God has prepared. In other words, this messenger is instrumental in bringing about the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, to his people, to bring them into the land. Secondly, he has an authority. This angel possesses an authority. It's told that they have to pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. He's a personal being who speaks. He's not just the pillar of cloud and fire. He is rather a person. 
who has a voice, who has to be heard. And that authority that he has is on the very level of the authority of Yahweh himself. He is to be obeyed just in the sense as they obey Yahweh. They are to listen very carefully to him and obey him. Not only does he have authority to be obeyed, but this person also, if you'll notice, has an authority to withhold forgiveness. What authority to withhold forgiveness? It says there in verse 21, Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. That should strike you. That should struck the audience around Jesus in Mark chapter 2 when he tells the paralytic, sons, your sins are forgiven. And the people around say, who has authority to forgive sins except for who? God alone. Well, I think equally valid is who has the authority to withhold the forgiveness of sin except for God alone? So who is this then that has the authority to withhold forgiveness? He has the authority to issue commands. He is fulfilling the promise that God has made. And then another observation is that he has the very name of God in him. Look again at verse 21. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. That's an exceptionally significant statement for God to make about someone. The name of God is the very revelation of his attributes and his nature. It's not just the word that you say. It is in a way that sums up the whole of his being. When Moses asks the, at the burning bush, asks God, who shall I say hath sent me? God answers, tell them, I am who I am. And that gets shortened to the name of Yahweh. The name of God reveals the nature and attributes of God. That name is Yahweh, and this name is placed in this messenger. It means that this messenger in some way manifests the very character and attributes of God. Who would be adequate to do something like that? Who would have in himself the infinitude and eternality to display the majesty of the attributes of God. Well, if you look further, another observation is that this messenger is indistinguishable from Yahweh. In verse 22, look at how God says it. He says, but if you carefully obey his, that's the messenger's voice, and do all that I say. Kind of a strange way to write a sentence. If you obey his voice and do all that I say, who's he talking about? It's almost indistinguishable here. Who means who? In verse 23, he does a similar thing. He says, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, and then he goes on and says, and I blot them out. Well, again, who's doing what? There's this intermixing, in a sense, almost of identities. Finally, we have to observe this. Yahweh is never sloppy with his name or with whom he shares his name. 
Isaiah 42.8, the Lord says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. So this mixing, or this interchangeability of the messenger of Yahweh and Yahweh is not accidental. It is not a mistake, it is not a sloppy sentence by the Lord. This messenger has shown up at a few key moments in the book of Exodus. At key junctures in this book, we see this angel appearing. He appears in Exodus chapter 3, which I already referred to when Moses was out keeping the flock. And he sees the sight of the burning bush. He goes to see it, and it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was not, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And in verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Notice it would be the Lord who appeared to him in that plain, and yet it is the Lord who speaks, the Lord who identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is one of the holiest moments of all scripture, and you have Moses encountering the burning bush that's not consumed, where he's told to take off his sandals. And who is there? The angel, speaking as Yahweh. Another key juncture of the book of Exodus is chapter 14, when Israel has been led out of Egypt, and they're moving towards the sea, and Egypt is coming behind them. It says in Exodus 14, verse 19, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, not one coming near the other all night. That's a crucial moment, the redemption of Israel. Who's there? It is the angel moving between Israel and the forces of Egypt, protecting them. You see some elements of who this angel is. And if you do a study in your scripture, you will find there's lots more. And it's very intriguing. Here in Exodus 23, it is said that God sends an angel before them to guard them on the way and to bring them to the place that God has prepared. We have to ask this question now, is there anyone else in all scripture who speaks with the authority of God, who has his name, the name of God in him, who is so indistinguishable from uh, Yahweh that he shares in a sense his identity, and who is sent by God to prepare the way for the people to enter into God's place that he has prepared. Can you think of anyone? Anyone come off the top of your head? Sunday school answer, isn't it? Jesus. When Jesus was here on earth, isn't it 
interesting that as you read about this life, that it's so indistinguishable at times to try to figure out who's talking. This God, Jesus, man. We see here the God man who speaks with the authority of God. We have God's name in him. It is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. It is the messenger of God, of all messengers, the one who reveals God in its very essence, in all of his attributes. Who, if you look at him, not only do you see Jesus, but who do you see? You see the Father. Remember Jude, verse 5, when he writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Who does Jude credit with the exodus and deliverance? And it's Jesus. Most ultimately, though God sent his messenger to lead Israel into the promised land, most ultimately, about 1400 years after the events there in Exodus, God demonstrated his greatest love, his greatest saving grace, sending his very son in the incarnation where he took on flesh, adding flesh to his deity is the God-man. The angel and Jesus have this striking comparison. One uh, commentator is very helpful as he lays out for us these, these contrasts and comparisons between Jesus and this messenger here in Exodus 23. Exodus 23 verse 20 God says that he sent an angel before them to guard them on the way to bring them to the place that he has prepared. Jesus says in John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Speaking of the way, God says that this messenger will guard Israel on the way. In verse 20, Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This messenger in verse 20 is said to guard Israel on the way. Jesus says in John 17, verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. This messenger of Yahweh has God's words such that the people need to pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Jesus says in John 17 verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. This messenger of Yahweh is said to have Yahweh's name in him. And Jesus says in John 17, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given. This messenger was sent to bring the people of Israel home. God has sent his son, his very son, to 
come to us. Do what? Bring us in. And he does that by going before us. That's what the messenger did here in Exodus 23. It says that he is being sent to guard them on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepared. I send an angel before you, God says. Isn't that a lovely picture? That wherever Israel is about to trod, and they're going to go to some very difficult places, wherever they go, they are not blazing the trail. Someone has been there first. It is the very messenger that God has sent to prepare the way for them. Isn't that a wonderful picture? That God himself sends someone to clear the path. And isn't that the case for us? Hasn't God sent his very own son to go before us? Is there any place that he would lead us that he hasn't gone first? Is there any place that he does not go to ahead of us? An expression of his love as he clears the path, as he absorbs the shock of enemies, as he sets the example for us? Is it an intrinsic to the very summoning to discipleship when Jesus says, follow me, that he will be the one out front leading in front of us so that wherever we go, wherever our feet go, he goes first? Isn't you know, that the case, that Jesus is the one who goes before us? Isn't it our Savior who has walked the very path that we would fear to walk had he not walked through it first? Yes, indeed, Jesus is the one who goes before us. He goes before us in the scariest, into the scariest circumstances. When Jesus came to lead us, he came to lead us home. But the path home is through that scariest of events. The path home is not really through the wilderness of Israel, not really through those physical enemies of Canaanites. The path home for us is through that dark veil of death. That's the path home. Jesus was asked by Simon Peter in John 13, 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Where's he going? He's going to the cross. He's going to death. And he's going there ahead. And then Jesus says this, but you will follow after me. He goes before, Jesus went before us to the cross. And he crossed that veil of death for us before we have to so that he takes that black veil of death and strips it wide open. So now it's not a mystery what's behind it, but rather he has now created the access through that door of death into the very presence of God. So that when we go through that veil, we don't have to wonder what's on the other side because we know that our Savior is there. He has prepared the way for us. Not only that, but as he went through death himself, he disarmed the very things and very enemies that would afflict us most. He had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed death itself by rising from the dead. Snapped off the fangs of death 
so it can no longer inject its venom into us, which is condemnation for our sin, but rather he conquered at the cross our sin and opened wide the gates of heaven so that we can enter into glory, him having cleared the path so that we can follow him. When author A. E. Rodden puts it this way, Israel was guided at night to the wilderness by a pillar of fire. The dying Christian is guided in the night of death by the light of life, Christ crucified, Christ for us, and the light of life before us is never extinguished. The way through the valley of death shall be bright, and we shall pass through it in safety, for it leads to the place whither the dying pathway of Christ led. It leads to the Father and to heaven. Indeed, it's gone. protected us, blazed the trail. This is what Israel was to experience in a very physical way. As their enemies were to be hearing the news of what God had done in Egypt, and they would tremble in their boots such that when the Israelites came, the Israelites' enemies were ready to flee with their backs to Israel. God would send them into confusion, God would make That was for Israel. For us, hasn't the message of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ reached the ears of our ultimate enemies, of Satan and his minions? Haven't they heard that the Son of God has taken sin to the cross and our debt has been nailed there? Haven't they heard that he has risen from the grave so that he lives forevermore at the right hand of the Father? And in doing so, we now have the one who has conquered our enemies totally for us. And our enemies just twiddling their fingers, wondering how they could scheme against us. But because Christ has, our, has us in his grip, they can never snatch us away. Christ, our victor, has gone before us. He protects us, prepares a hope for us by defeating our enemy. And not only that, just as Israel was promised the richest of blessings, where God said, I'll bless your food, I'll bless your water. None of your wives will miscarry or be barren. And he says also that they will have fullness of days. We too understand that in Christ we have all the blessings in heaven. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have fellowship restored with God. We have peace with each other. We have the hope of eternal life. We will never perish because Christ is gone before. He has prepared a place to which he will bring us so that we might be with him. Israel was given those wonderful promises. And how were they to respond? It's really our second question. Very briefly, how they were to respond was by paying careful attention, obeying his voice, serving him alone, destroying all idols, making no alliance with the world. And in a sense, those aren't extraordinary commands. After all that's happened, after all that God has promised to do for them, he will do for them, is it all that much to expect that his people would actually listen to him? That's the way it should be by default. If you find that there is one who's going to lead you to all blessing, 
Why would you go after any other God for another blessing? If you know that this is the exclusive God who made heaven and earth, why would you have anything to do with the gods of the lands of your predecessors? If you know that God has all riches in himself, why would you love the world? And isn't it the same thing that Jesus asks of us, or God asks of us? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Your children, keep yourselves from idols. Do not love the world with things in the world. This, in a way, is no different than God telling Israel, make no covenant with them. Destroy their fruits. It's in two words. There's that peculiar statement in verse 21 that I want to give our final attention to, where it says, pay careful attention to him, for unto the messenger, and obey his voice, and do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression. My name is it. That phrase, he will not pardon your transgression, strike you as odd. You think, isn't that precisely what Jesus does? Doesn't he pardon our transgression? And don't you even read in the Old Testament, in Exodus 34, verse 6, when God passes before Moses and proclaims his name, says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin? You think, what's up with this? I will not forgive, for he will not pardon your transgression. But what I understand this to mean in the context is that God is leading his people into the promised land through this messenger. And he's going before them to lead the way. And so they must listen carefully to his voice because he is the one who is going to set the path for them to follow, to get into the place where they will inherit these promises. And if they don't listen to his voice, there is no other voice to listen to. And so how will they get into the promised land? They cannot get there on their own means. And so, in a way, just by default, if they reject this messenger and reject his voice, their sins cannot be forgiven because there is no other way to go and receive the promises of the land. There's no other way to get there. Yet this is exactly what the people do. That generation in Numbers 14, we see this passage fulfilled. When they sent spies into the land and they come back and give bad reports saying the land is full of giants and we're but grasshoppers to them. And the whole congregation, it says in Numbers 14 too, said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? They are not listening to the voice of the messenger who is then leading them into the land. They rejected it. So God says, shall not go in. This entire generation perishing. Their transgression is not forgiven. And you remember what happens after that? They think, oh no, oh no, we'll go. We're going to go. We'll go right in. And they pick up their arms and they get ready to go fight. 
But Moses tells them in verse 42, do not go up for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. They try to go when the messenger is not leading them. And what happens? They get struck down. So that whole generation dies in the wilderness. Their transgression was not forgiven because they left the fountain of life. Turn with me finally to Hebrews chapter 2. You cannot survive if you do not listen to the Lord who is the way and prepares the way. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to the Lord. Did you notice that phrase in verse 3? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And that salvation is founded on Jesus Christ. That you need Him. There is no one else to go to. So then there is no pathway to forgiveness of your sin. But God makes wonderful thoughts and he keeps them in his life. And he even gives them to his people in the new covenant. He calls us, I think, his people now. And speaking of his son, this is my beloved son, whom I well pleased. Listen to him. You will the words those who want follow Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you have given us such a wonderful Savior who has gone before us. Lord, if we are faithful, that we would know that his way is always the best way. Help us, Father, to be faithful. Help us to be listening to him, taking Thank you, Father, that we are in your presence, that you have pardoned our transgression and forgiven us. Lord, keep us near, Lord Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes on you. Jesus, we thank you.